The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening. So tonight, um, this is the second of a three-week series we're doing on wise speech or right speech. I don't know how many of you were here last week, but uh, Daniel Bowling uh, talked about the intention behind our speech and also about the importance of listening. Uh, listening is a huge part of our uh, interrelationships. Today I'm going to focus mostly on the areas where we tend to have difficulties in our speech. And next week, um, Merka Naster is going to talk about um, the practicalities of developing uh, our speech and improving on our skills in the world, uh, in the workplace and at home. The Buddha thought that wise speech was so important that he gave it its own step uh, on the Eightfold Path, equal to mindfulness, equal to meditation. The, we often take our speech for granted, but it has a tremendous impact in our lives. Uh, just think about what happens, you know, one word, you know, somebody yells fire. You know, that one word can have such tremendous impact uh, on a lot of people and, and it's very quickly. Uh, one of the things that Gil, I like that Gil said, he said that most of us pay attention much more to the way we dress than we do to the way we speak. Unwise speech is one of the quickest ways to create problems in our lives. I know as a teenager, I could go from totally peaceful and laid back to tremendously angry just by five words from my mother. You know, like, why aren't you like so-and-so, you know, just like that. Um, and a lot of buttons we have that are, are triggered by, by very simple words. Sometimes you don't realize the impact of our speech uh, for instance, you know, getting angry at a customer service person, you know, and um, it's hurtful to them. It also hurts our own agenda. You know, how many people think that by yelling at a customer service person, you're going to get better service? Um, you know, very few people do, but yet that's what a lot of people do. They get annoyed and irritated, unfriendly, unkind. Um, so it affects... Um, the person that we're being rude to, it affects our agenda of getting what we want, and it affects our own peace of mind. So speech is, has an amazing impact in the way we live in the world. Someone I know, um, he worked in tech support, and he said that, um, you know, computer, uh, internet service provider tech support, and he said when people would call and they'd get rude and frustrated, um, they would, they called it, they would put them on penalty hold. <laughs> and I thought, I thought of it sort of like time out for adults. <laughs> Our speech can make us lose friends, um, it can affect us at work, lose jobs, um, it can incite wars. So, um, the benefits of speaking skillfully are, are really widespread also. They create social harmony. It creates um, friendship and trust. The less a society is dependent on thinking that people are telling the truth. That's basically what makes a society function. That's what makes a relationship function. The less trust there is in a relationship 
or in the society, the more dysfunctional that society is. So really, if you look at the world we live in, so much of that, so much of all this chaos and suffering is because people just aren't telling the truth. And if we look at our own lives, often that's, uh, that's a part of the problems in our relationships. Uh, another benefit of uh, wise speech is psychological. If we speak wisely in our lives, we don't have regrets about what we've said. You don't feel bad that you just yelled at your kid. You don't feel bad that, uh, like, for instance, people who lie, you know, once you tell a lie, you know, then you kind of have to support the lie. And then it can get complex and you're spending all this energy trying to make sure your lie is consistent. It's exhausting. And... Um, and then the third thing that that's a benefit is really, um, you know, what we may call, call karmic, the karmic benefits. What we say today has an effect tomorrow. And sometimes the seeds of kindness can come back and nourish us, or the seeds of, um, you know, harsh language can come back and bite us. And then the last benefit in meditation, you know, when a mind isn't filled with, you know, regret about this argument you had and regret about how things went with something. You know, the mind can really focus on being peaceful and have allowing insights to come. So the Buddha divided, um, kind of taught about right speech in two ways. He gave four no's and four yeses. So four ways, four things to refrain from in our speech and four things to make sure that we include in our speech. So I want to first um, focus on the four things to refrain from. So the four, four things to refrain from are refrain from lying, refrain from malicious or divisive speech, to refrain from harsh speech, and refrain from idle speech or gossip. So first, I want to talk about refraining from lying. Sometimes, you know, lying can be very gross. You know, you just, you know, you, you, you say, I didn't take it, you know, something very simple and obvious, or it can be very subtle. Lies take on different forms depending on the motivating root. For instance, if the motivating root for a lie is greed, your lies are going to be uh, self-serving to gain personal advantage for yourself or for people close to you. Uh, for instance, you might lie to get material wealth. You know, cheating on your taxes is one way to do it. Or in a lot of other, you know, more um, obvious ways, such as um, some things that our government has done and, you know, and things like that. Or we might be motivated by greed for admiration. We want, you know, we want to be a hotshot. We want to be somebody, you know. So we might lie to try to, you know, you know, because we want that advantage. You know, we want respect, you know. A salesperson might lie. You know, many of us have have seen not just a salesperson, but also in ads, in writings, you know, where, where products are touted as being a lot better than they really are. A lot of people exaggerate their accomplishments or even make them up. I had a relative who used to like to gamble, and um, if you listen to him, he always won, always. But he wasn't wealthy. But, you know, you get the idea. So with hatred is the motive. So that was greed, you, you seek out advantage. For hatred is the motive, 
you know, you, the, the intention is to hurt someone or to damage them. Uh, such as you might talk about something that someone did and then color it a lot worse. If aversion or fear is the motive, it might be trying to avoid a consequence. Have any of you spent time um, coming up with ide- ways to escape a, park, uh, a, a speeding ticket? How many of you have fantasized about, you know, okay, what would I say if I got stopped right now? Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, we want to avoid something. We want to avoid a consequence. I'm sick might be an excuse to not go somewhere. Sometimes people lie by mission. You know, they just, uh, you know, which is usually due to fear. You know, hitting a car and not leaving a note. Another way that we might lie um, out of fear is um, a parent or someone in a position of authority, a parent, a teacher, uh, a leader. Um, we were used to knowing everything, right? You're up here, you know everything, right? You're supposed to have all the answers or the parent's supposed to know everything. And so there's a tendency for the person in power to not want to be seen as not knowing. And so they fake it, they, you know, you know, it's a, it's a very powerful motive for lying. A parent does not want to give up being seen as the, the one who has all the answers. They don't want to be seen as vulnerable. We get very hooked into these roles. I'll tell you my own history of lying, you know, my background. Um, my parents, you know, were in Europe and during World War II, and my father, um, he was a Polish Jew, uh, who joined the Russian army to fight the Nazis. And even though the Russians were fighting the Nazis, you know, uh, they still didn't have a love for Jews. And it was very dangerous to be known as a Jew. And um, in the nine years that he was in the army, most of the time was spent outdoors. And um, one of the things that is very hard to come by is privacy. And in Russia, it, at least at that point in time, uh, circumcision was not common. So that if you were circumcised, there was a sure sign you were Jewish. And so for the nine years, every day, he had to find a way to urinate where he wasn't seen, where he had to hide. And, um, you know, that created a very deep level, a very, a very strong habit of hiding, of lying, um, and, you know, many other things during the war period, you know, where lying was really essential to his survival. And my mother came from a similar background in World War II and also developed a very keen sense for lying to survive. So I grew up in an environment, you know, they went to Argentina where I grew up, and um, where lying was just normal. It was just something we did. It's the way you got by in the world. It's the way, you know, if, uh, but it spread to everything. It was, you know, you know, if they didn't want me to do something, they'd lie to me about it. You know, those, it just became pervasive. The only thing they didn't lie about was money. You know, they kind of held, well, you know, we're honest people. You know, when it comes to money, you know, we, we hold that sacred, you know, or money or possessions. And my mother would walk a mile to return a dime. Um, you know, because it was so important to be honest that way. So it was a very kind of a little bit of a twisted dynamic. You know, I knew my parents lied, but I didn't know that they lied to me. 
and until I was um, eight. And uh, my parents decided to emigrate to the United States. And um, we went by this big Japanese ship, you know, and there were me, my sister, I was eight, she was ten, and my parents in this little tiny cabin for a month, you know, going to Los Angeles. And my father was really worried that, you know, my sister and I weren't going to be able to behave since there was nothing to do on that on that ship. And, um, you know, so he told us that a week into the trip, the deck would be opened up and there would be a swimming pool there. And, um, and you know, of course, as an eight-year-old, you know, my father told me that I believed him for the whole week. And when the week was up and it wasn't there, I didn't get angry. I didn't get angry with him. But I just, something broke inside. I just stopped trusting my parents. Because my mother had supported the lie also. And um, it really damaged my relationship with my parents at that point. And, uh, but it also made it okay for me to totally lie to them. You know, so at that point it was, you know, I became a better liar than they were. You know, I did whatever I wanted to, when I wanted to do it, and just lied my way around it so that I could get away with anything because I was such a good liar. Until I started, uh, started doing yoga, you know, and, and, um, and, you know, I started embarking on a spiritual path. And, you know, here we were seeking the truth. And it finally dawned on me that there was something incongruous about seeking the truth and lying. And um, so I, you know, I realized that I needed to live the truth and speak the truth. And it was kind of a very gradual process for me. One of the problems with lying is that you suspect everybody. You know, it doesn't matter what anybody says, they're suspect. I mean, if you're lying, you know, how, you know, how do you know? And um, my husband, who's up there, he was the exact opposite. He believed everybody. And I just thought he was really, really naive, you know. But, but his trust and his, his honesty, his radical honesty was so strong that it allowed me to trust him. And in that trust, I began to see that people were trustable. People still lied. I mean, my eyes are open. You know, people do that. But I was able to see the difference. It was years before I really found the compassion uh, to really understand what my parent, you know, and forgive my parents for for you know, who they, what they did, because it was really, you know, the conditions of their lives. You know, they didn't, you know, they did the best that they could. But it took me many years for me to let go of that, you know, that separation in myself. There are many different ways that people lie. One of the ways that I'm particularly, um, that particularly bugs me <laughs> is uh, when people pretend to listen to you. You know, we don't think of that as lying. We don't think of it as dishonesty. You know, but here, here they are. They're paying attention to you. They're looking at you in the eye, and they're thinking about something else. Now, the reason I have to be very forgiving about it is because, you know, I 
I do it too on occasion. You know, somebody says something and it triggers my own thoughts, and then they're they're moving their mouth while I'm thinking about my own thoughts. You know, but it's a it's a level of dishonesty because you know they're under the impression you're listening to them. So that's a very important part of really being an honest person is to actually listen when you're pretending to listen, not just pretend to listen. Another area that's really important is uh, a lot of people forget that the tone of our voice and our posture are an integral part of our speech. Um, the same words with a different tone can have a very, very different meaning. You may say, you know, oh, you look tired and be very compassionate. Or you may say, you look tired, you know, <laughs> which most people take as, you know, God, I look terrible. So tone is really crucial, you know, and, um, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm talking to someone, you know, and, you know, and, and I don't think I'm being listened to. And, you know, I might say, well, you know, are you listening, you know, are you listening to me? And they go, you know, and they go, um, um, yeah, I'm listening to you, you know, and, and, you know, there's a, there, there's a sense of, you know, they didn't quite get why I was asking. Okay, I'll tell you, I've told this story before, but, um, but I'll, I'll do it again. Okay, so a couple, some of you have heard it, but I was actually, we had a little group like this, you know, where we're actually doing discussion about right speech. It wasn't a talk, but more of discussion, you know, and I was sharing, um, something that my husband and I do sometimes to help ourselves with our speech in our relationship, you know. Um, and so we've given each other permission to do this. So, for instance, if I'm irritable, you know, I ask them to come up to me and just ask me to be kind. And just the fact that he asked me that usually kind of gets me off it. So, you know, we, we do that with each other, you know, and... Um, on that day, my husband was uh, sitting in the audience, you know, and he said, um, you know, yeah, that, that works a lot better than saying, you know, please don't be a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the next morning, uh, <laughs> I figured you would. <laughs> So, so the next morning, you know, I was kind of rushing, trying to get out the door, and so I was just a little bit irritable, you know. And he comes up to me and puts his arms around me and very sweetly whispers in my ear in the sweetest tone, "Please don't be a bitch." <laughs> so, anyway, so tone is everything, right? <laughs> um. So, you know, sometimes our posture, you know, if somebody's talking to you, you know, and you're like sitting with your arms crossed, you know, or we say a lot by rolling our eyes, you know, or um, it reminds me a story that Gil tells, you know, of, um, of a student that came up to him and said, you know, what you did a year ago in our conversation, really, what you said to me really hurt my feelings. You know, it's taken me a year to come back and talk to you. And he said, oh, what, well, what did I do? What did I say? He said, well, you know, you raised your eyebrow. <laughs> and, you know, and they were really meant it. They really meant it, you know. And, um, you know, so our body, or posture, the way we hold ourselves are all, uh, we're constantly talking. So that's um, so. The second part of uh, of what we're asked to refrain from is malicious or divisive speech, and that's speech that tends to um, alienate 
one person from another or alienates one group from another. Sometimes, like even in a sangha like this, where, where people are really trying, working hard to really speak wisely, sometimes we um, divide ourselves into us and the government or Democrats and Republicans or, um, you know, in a way that we speak about it in a way that's very divisive, that's alienating. It's like we're not in it all together. Divisive speech is usually motivated by hatred, by anger, by jealousy. I remember when I was a teenager, um, uh, a relative told me about what another relative had said about me. I never spoke to that person again. I mean, I, I should have checked on it, you know, but it just created such a gap that, you know, it was, I just never wanted to uh, cross it. Um, so that's divisive speech. I've also been at the other end of it where um, somebody's told me a lot about someone and it's all negative and then I had to meet them. And the only thing I could think about, you know, it was so hard to see this person newly. All the stories, all everything just was right there. And what was really interesting for me was that, um, you know, I tried really hard to just keep putting it aside. And when I actually got to know this person, I really liked them. And it really made me aware of how much, you know, how much damage that can do. So the guidelines that I that we like to use is when we're talking about someone, are we representing them that representing that person with dignity? And is what we're saying creating divisiveness between people, or is it helping bring people together? Sometimes, you know, we disguise or um, concern about another person's behavior. We disguise malicious speech as concern. Um, somebody uh, could say something like, I'm so worried about Jane. She's, you know, I'm so worried. She's been sleeping with a different guy every week, you know. Um, you know, and it, you know, it's, e- it's easy to uh, pretend there. Uh, sometimes people can give backhanded compliments, you know. Oh, your gray hair is so becoming. It's, isn't it wonderful that looking older is okay these days? Yeah. <laughs> or what was it recently? Somebody, somebody, uh, not to me, but they said, uh, oh, you're not as dumb as I thought. <laughs> so the next um, area that, the, that we're asked to refrain from is harsh speech. And... Um, in general, harsh speech is abusive speech, uh, belittling, like verbal abuse, uh, profanity, sarcasm, uh, putting down on people, using words as weapons. Um, but what's interesting is what's harsh to one person may not be harsh to another. And in some cultures or subcultures, um, profanity is really part of the way that people communicate. And uh, so it's really important to really be aware of context and not just have this really hard and fast rule. Ah, you guys are wrong because you're doing this. You have bad speech. You know, not to stand outside of it, but really look at it from the intention of, of the person who's speaking. Abusive speech is pretty obvious, you know, yelling or bitter words. 
insulting, you know, you're a slob, you know. Um, but the area that gets really tricky is sarcasm. Sarcasm is often saying something and meaning the opposite. And um, with, the, with the idea that you're taunting someone, there's a difference between teasing and taunting. Uh, there's, this, there's this desire to hurt on some level when we're sarcastic. An example is someone shows up late and someone says, right on time. You know, so it's very, you know, there's a quality to it that, that, that's a little bit mean. And um, in fact, when you look at the word sarcasm, you know, it, it actually is made up of two words. Uh, sarco means flesh. And the asm comes from from ripping the flesh. That's what actually sarcasm means, ripping the flesh. Uh, so there definitely is that quality. Now, men tend to have uh, male bonding is different than female bonding. And you see a lot more teasing in male bonding. And teasing that can very much be very close on the border of sarcasm or teasing, and really what we look at is the intention behind it. Sometimes men can be competitive with each other, and when competition enters into it, that's when it starts getting slightly mean, slightly cutting, as opposed to just friendly teasing. Friendly teasing makes you feel close to someone. Sarcasm makes you you feel a little bit of a put-down. Another thing about harsh language uh, in, a, in a culture is that sometimes we take language that's harsh um, in a group that's oppressed and that has been oppressed by language, and, and it has been co-opted by that group to decrease the power of that language. Um, let me just say, say that simpler. Like, for instance, um, you know, the word dyke was often used as a put-down for lesbians, uh, but... It was it was co-opted by the lesbian community so that, you know, they call each other dykes. And that took away the the power of that word to hurt them. And that's happened in a lot of other subgroups where um, the group itself has, you know, the word queer. Um, I've even seen the word uh, crip being used by people with disabilities. Um, you know, I don't think it's supposed to be used outside of their own group, you know, but, um, but, but those things are things that are always changing within a culture. So the next area that I want to um, talk about is idle chatter, which includes gossip. Now, idle chatter can be, um, can be described as speaking without connecting. Uh, speaking without a helpful purpose, without value. It can be just talking for the sake of talking. Pointless. Um, sometimes even forgetting that there's anyone else sitting there listening to you. Sometimes you want to break the eyes. So the words you say may be trivial, but the intent is to connect. So, so, it's really the difference is where, where your heart is. You know, are you really making connection with this person or are you just babbling? Sometimes we um, just chatter because we're uncomfortable with silence. Someone defined um, idle speech as um, don't speak in any way that bores others. Now, <laughs> I don't know about that definition, but, but I thought it was, you know, some of the time that really applies. 
Have you ever listened to someone talk about a subject go, that you have no interest in, in at all, and they just go on and on and on? So, have, have anyone not experienced that? <laughs> Every, holiday. Every holiday, right? And have any of you done that? <laughs> I bet the chances are somebody here has done that, or at least at some point, or at least for a while. Um, the other thing that uh, can be also seen as idle speech is um, habitual complaining. Um, you know, complaining about the, the economy, complaining about the weather, complaining about the government, complaining about, you know, what's on TV, about the computer being too slow or whatever. All the, this kind of habitual complaining. Um, it doesn't have value. It doesn't, it's not like a real conversation about politics, about the economy, but it's just kind of a whining type of habit. The problem with a habit like that is that it reinforces the, in our own minds, the sense that something isn't right. It creates kind of a certain chronic unhappiness in our mind. Oh, the world's not okay. Oh, the world's not okay. Uh, part of what's tempting about it is that sometimes people bond over their complaining. So there's like a little bit of a benefit that we get. You know, it's not a healthy bonding, but it's a bonding nevertheless that makes us feel connected on some level. And, you know, the same thing with gossip. You know, um, gossip, many people, um, gossip is, is uh, a talk or rumor, especially about the personal or private lives of other people. It's one of the oldest and most common means of spreading information in the world. I mean, before, you know, massive newspapers and Internet, that's how people found out about stuff. You know, usually through gossip, through just this casual way of, of spreading information and of spreading misinformation. I'm not sure what the balance is, but so much of the uh, hatred in the world about other groups and, and strangers is like really just a bunch of misinformation being spread about them. And really with the same, um, you know, the same way that we spread gossip about people we know. It's the same way of doing that. One uh, popular etymology of the word gossip, um, I'm going to words tonight, um, is it comes, some people think it comes from um, uh, when politicians used to send out their assistants uh, to go to bars and listen to conversations to get a sense of what the pulse of what, of what people thought about what was happening. And they would instruct them to go sip a beer and, um, you know, and listen. So that's one of the thoughts of where that came about. Um, you know, historically, gossip has helped um, normalize how pe- the boundaries, the moral boundaries of a culture, because what happens is that you know, uh, you know, people talk to each other, and, and when somebody, what's interesting in gossip, right, is when people go beyond that boundary, right. That's what we say. You know, when somebody does something that's 
out of the norm, you know. And so uh, they'll say, oh, so-and-so, you know, uh, you know, they had, and back in the 50s, you know, they had a child out of wedlock, you know. And so that kind of reinforces, so it's wrong to have a child out of wedlock. So there's this quality of, of really strengthening the values of a society that happens with gossip. People who gossip, again, feel a bond. And that supports the continued gossiping. But there's much more skillful ways to bond with people. You know, we can bond over common interests, over uh, the things we enjoy, the joys in our life. And a lot of gossip is just actually malicious. They're just ways of, of spreading hatred, you know. Do, do you know what she said about you? You know, that kind of um, activity. So to summarize the four things that, that we're asked to refrain from is we're asked to refrain from lying, from malicious or divisive speech, from harsh speech, and from idle speech or gossip. All unnecessary speech that's motivated by, that's not motivated by generosity or kindness or compassion is harmful. So it's really about where we come from, you know, that, that back to Dan was talking about, you know, what is our intention in our speech? So the, the four guidelines of, of, uh, are helpful to support developing and, and improving and refining our speech are four questions that we like to ask. Is this truthful? Is it useful? Is it kind? And is it the right time to say it? So using those four guidelines pretty much, you know, keeps us, you know, within the realms of, of, uh, of connecting with people in a really skillful and healthy manner. One of the things that's part of being truthful is keeping our word. And um, if we say we're going to be there, to be there, to be timely, that's part of being truthful. And one of the things, sometimes uh, some, some of us have a, uh, may have a habit of being late to stuff, you know. And we think that's, um, you know, it's not a big deal, you know, just late a lot, you know. But the truth of it is that what happens is that if, if we say we're going to do something and we don't do it, we stop trusting ourselves. People don't trust us. So it's very damaging internally when we don't keep our word. Sometimes telling the truth might not be easy, and it might not be welcome, but it still might be what's needed. An example of that is, um, you know, I made a commitment in my life that um, when I'm confronted with uh, racism, sexism, um, that I won't stay silent, that by being silent when, when those things happen right in front of me, it really um, gives us ideas of legitimacy uh, that I don't think we, we should give. And, you know, one of the areas that it can happen in, you know, that can be very difficult is in social situations like a family gathering, you know, where, you know, here you have 20 people and you're supposed to be celebrating and somebody, you know, not just makes one racist remark, but then they go on about it. You know, and then everybody's like trying to keep the peace and be silent. But just giving them that, that, that audience 
legitimizes that, that that's an okay, that hatred, that type of hatred is okay to, to, to be there. And so for me, you know, I mean, the challenge for me is to do it in a peaceful way, say, please don't talk about that. I, I don't want to have that in my, you know, in, in the room. You know, to say it as kindly as I can and as non-reactively as I can. But I think it's essential that that we don't tolerate those things, uh, you know, with our silence. When we have a conflict with someone um, and we don't talk about it, you know, what happens is the resentments develop. So um, often telling the truth is really speaking our truth, not holding it back. One of the areas that I was very, a um, uh, couple of years ago, um, I was, I did this uh, three-year training uh, through Spear Rock, the Community Dharma Leader Program, where they kind of train you to be a teacher, med- a meditation teacher. And we would have these like week-long retreats, you know. And so the group of us that took the training got very close, and and um, and we had a um, a couple in the group uh, decide to get married at the training, uh, which is kind of cool, you know, so everybody's kind of very excited, you know, and, and we're kind of setting up a party in the evening for the wedding, and um, a few people were really upset during the day, and, you know, but everybody said, try not, not to ruin the fun of the wedding, you know, but finally, one of those people, we do a check-in every day, and she had the courage to say, um, very hesitantly and very painfully to her, but she said, "You know, um, you know, uh, I'm really sad today. You know, because you know this is a joyful occasion for them, and I hate to say this because I don't want to do anything that takes their joy away. I, I love these people, and but you know, I'm a lesbian. I've been in a relationship for ten years, and I can't get married. You know, and it's so sad to me when I, you know, at this point, you know, and." Um, and then that opened up the, the the space, and somebody else raised their hands, and she said, "You know, uh, I lost my husband a couple of months ago, and I've been really sad all day, but I've been trying to hide it because I didn't want to take away their joy." And um, and I always remember the you know the woman who was getting married, you know, she said um, she just thanked them, you know, she thanked them, and she said. Uh, you know, you've just given me a gift, this closeness that we have, this intimacy we have. Um, it doesn't take away our joy. It's just so wonderful that we have the room for all these things at the same time. We have joy and we have sadness and we have sorrow. And, um, you know, it took the courage of this one woman to speak her truth. And it was a very, very powerful for all of us. So the next uh, guideline for speech is to, you know, is what we say useful? Is it helpful? And um, one of the things that can be easy to do is when we start speaking while somebody else is speaking. Now, when that happens, nothing useful is happening because they can't hear you. You know, when two people are talking at the same time. But it's sort of an interesting, um, I did a workshop with uh, someone who teaches nonviolent communication. And she's uh, from Israel. And she said, you know, here, when people interrupt each other like that, it's considered rude. In Israel, if people don't interrupt each other, it means you're not interested. And so that was a really, you know, interesting concept, how these, the way we speak and the way we interact definitely has a lot of cultural um, uh, 
differences. I think they call it overlapping. One, one area in terms of something being useful is advice. Um, we all know how it feels, or most of us know how it feels to be given advice we don't want. You know, most of us have felt that. Um, where, or advice where it's been given for our sake, you know, it, it appears like it's been given, you know, to help us, but what it's really about is a person's like wants to show off how smart they are. Giving advice can create a power dynamic of one person being stronger and the other person weaker. Uh, in a very basic way, receiving empowers the giver. For some of us, learning to receive graciously requires letting go of always wanting to be the top dog, always wanting to be the one on the know. So receiving is, is a really uh, important part of speech. It's like if somebody, you know, some people never want to be told. Never want to be told. Um, and a classic place where that happens, you know, is a stereotype of men not wanting to get directions. You know, I mean, that's about a power dynamic. You know, it's, it's like, you know, I'm the one in the know. You know, that's where the power is. You know, to get directions is, oh, I'm weaker. You know, you know, I'm the receiver. Um, so, you know, one psychologist recommends uh, that uh, we uh, make it easy for kids to buy us gifts um, and accept them from them so that they can learn to, you know, feel good about themselves that way. You know, so for the parent to be the receiver, to give the kids, to empower the kids by letting them buy you a gift. So then the next thing that we want to be really conscious of in our speech is whether speech is kind, whether it's non-harmful. That even if we disagree with someone, even if we have to say it's unpleasant, that it's still coming out of kindness. When we have conflict with someone, you know, conflict happens all the time, you know, between all individuals, all communities, every society, conflict is a given. Um, how we deal with that conflict uh, really comes into play the moment that conflict becomes competitive. You know, two people can disagree, you can have a conversation. When it becomes competitive, it means somebody has to win. And so you're in it to win. You've stopped listening. The moment it becomes competitive, no, no communication is going on. Listening stops. Um, Daniel said last week, we often have the choice in life to be right or to be in relationship. We often choose to be right. And um, so can we disagree with kindness, with patience? And then the last uh, gu- uh, guideline is uh, to be timely in our speech. Uh, to say what we say at the right time, uh, that's when the art of listening really comes into play. Uh, sometimes you might be telling the truth. It might be very helpful information. It might be kind. But it might be absolutely the wrong time to tell it. I remember somebody called me uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they said, hi, you know, 
um, do you have time to talk? I said, no, actually, I have to leave in a minute. And they said, well, just let me tell you this, you know. And it was really important what they had to tell me. And it was not brief, you know. And um, so the timeliness is really important. You know, I hated to cut them off, but I had to cut them off in the middle of something really important and just say, I'm leaving, bye, you know. But that's um, another timeliness um you know, uh, when I first started giving talks, like a group of us started, you know, uh, giving talks and we were told to give each other feedback. You know, what did we do that work? What, you know, um, but Gil cautioned us. He said, give your, give each other feedback, but don't do it after the talk. Wait. You know, that there's a certain kind of openness, you know, and that, that and, uh, sensitivity, you know, that, that someone has when they give a talk and that's not the time to criticize them. Um, so timeliness. One last thing that I think requires uh, in today's day and age um, a special consideration is email, right? Email. Uh, you know, in this day and age where we have so much Internet email stuff, um, it's very easy to get careless with our email. Uh, and so much miscommunication can occur. Um, there was one email that went out that actually caused somebody to kill somebody. I mean, it's um, people have lost jobs over mistakes in email. It's become such an issue for people that um, Google actually came up with an interesting little gadget. Um, what it does is you set it up so that between certain hours, like if you write an email between midnight and 5 o'clock in the morning, it makes you do a simple math problems before it lets you send out an email. <laughs> so it's, the, it's, ava- it's available if you, if you feel you need that. <laughs> um, so when you have doubt about your speech, ask these questions. Is it true? Is it useful? Is it kind? And is this the right time? I'd like to finish with a quote from the Dalai Lama. To be aware of a single shortcoming within oneself is more useful than to be aware of a thousand in somebody else. Rather than speaking badly about people and in ways that will produce friction and unrest in their lives, we should practice a pure perception of them. And when we speak of others, speak of their good qualities. If you find yourself slandering anybody, just fill your mouth with excrement. That will break you of the habit quickly enough. <laughs> so, um, so does anybody have any questions or comments? Yes. And could you please use the microphone? Thank you. Um, on, is it useful and is it the right time? It seems to me that quite often you might not know the answer to that. So the example you gave with the people getting married, two people who raised their concerns, objections, if they had thought about it and didn't know how it was going to be reacted to, they probably wouldn't have said anything. So. It seems like holding things in reserve, you're missing some opportunities for good and for bad. So it's not very clear cut, is it? It's not clear cut, you know, and we'll make mistakes, you know, but that's, you know, uh, that happens. But if we look at our intention for speaking, 
you know, and when those people brought that up, they, they did it for the intention of um, uh, not making anybody wrong, you know, and, and I think that that, as long as intention is really clear, um, it doesn't matter if, if you make a mistake. I always wondered how uh, humor falls into this. If you're like Don Rickles and you've made a career out of insult comedy, um, but I've heard he's a very sweet man, you know, um, so he probably doesn't intentionally mean any harm to anyone, but that's his humor. You know, we often laugh at what hurts. Um, you know, a lot of people like pratfalls, you know. I, I don't particularly like those in humor, but a lot of people think they're really funny. Um, some of it is just cultural. Humor can be at somebody's expense. For instance, like lawyer jokes, you know. Um, I mean, I know lawyers who tell lawyer jokes. Um, but, you know, they are, you know, they're basically put down in a group of people. For some reason, some, some jokes like that seem to be more acceptable than others. Um, humor um, is an area that isn't clear-cut. You know, and um, some of it depends on the heart of where that where the the comedian is coming from. Um, there's a certain even with put down humor, you know, this is just my own perception is that a comedian ca- can have a certain quality of friendliness in the way they they do it that that holds a lightness. Um, you know, so I've seen it done that way, and that's that's when it's really good. And there's humor that can be very mean-spirited, too. So I think that we can, if we actually listen carefully, we can tell the difference, even though the same joke or similar jokes can seem, um, you know, one can be coming from a much more vicious point, and the other one can be actually the purpose is to just lighten everybody up. Uh, I think laughter is great. I think laughter is is um, is something that really bonds people. You know, when people laugh together. They they feel close to each other. Uh, so how we do that? Now laughter that that's done in a way that uh, really separates people. You know, like sometimes you know you'll get a group of people who'll put down on another group of people in a very um, um, like like racist humor. You know. Um, you know, and maybe that group is bonding, the group that's being racist, you know, but that's a very harmful type of humor. So we just really have to pay attention, you know. Um, but having said that, you know, my cousin uh, started, um, he was the founder of the comedy, uh, comedy sports. I don't know if any of you, have any of you heard of that? You know, it's, uh, I think they still have a place in Santa Clara. And, uh, what they did is they set up, uh, these really interesting guidelines for comedy where, um, they have two competing groups and, um, of improv. And, um, their humor is supposed to be non-racist, non-sexist, and no cussing. And it's really supposed to be a place you can bring your kids to. And, um, you know, I went to hear them, you know, and they were really funny. And it was really interesting. It's like, wow, you know, you know, you actually can do that. You can get away with it. You know, and of course, you know, anybody, if somebody slipped, it wasn't like a crime, you know, they would lose a point. <laughs> you know, if they accidentally, you know, uh, said something like that. And um, they also took off points for punning. But... Uh, <laughs> Um, but but again, you know, what, what really we look at is what, what the intention of it is, you know, and um, 
you know, but I, I don't know. You know, I don't have a real, very, very, you know, strong guideline, you know. Uh, anybody else have any other thoughts about that, about humor? I was thinking the role of, let's say, Stephen Colbert at the White House uh, roast, where um, he was in sort of a classic role of the court jester where the fool can make fun of the king and it's okay because that's the role mm-hmm. and that's the place for it. <laughs> yeah, but he was stuck. He couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, ideally we have an environment where everybody can laugh at themselves, you know, and that's really what we're looking at, you know, but um, it's not necessarily how it works, you know. Um, especially, you know, when we're so polarized in our culture, you know, so what's really hysterical to the, you know, Obama supporters was not all that funny to the McCain supporters. Um, You know, that's how that's how what happens, you know. And so is it skillful? You know, it, it, um, you know, it felt good to lighten up something that was so heavy. You know, it was so, there was so much uh, pain around the election, around what's happening in the country, that just that lightening up was so helpful. So, you know, regardless of that polarizing that might happen, I, you know, I think it was really valuable. So just, you know, what's really important is our intention. I think that's really the, the, the main thing I can say about humor, you know, it, what's the intention when, when we, um, when we tell a joke, when we make people laugh. So um, we have room for time for one more question, if there's any question or comment. Uh, yeah. I have a quick comment. It, it, it occurred to me the whole notion or the area around um, right speech is that if you can have the um, the other's best intention in mind, then the majority of right or wrong speech kind of goes away. Um, so I guess the question is how to get oneself in the position of always having the other person's best in- interest in mind. Um, you know, I'm really glad you brought that up. It kind of ties into a little bit of what um, Daniel said last week about having a theme in our lives. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that I like to do in my life is uh, I re- really like to see periodically reflect on what is it that I need in my life right now? What, what would bring uh, the most growth in my life? And uh, like, for instance, once uh, one of the things I chose was uh, working on patience so that I just kept using patience as my reference point in my life. And, um, you know, so that um, when I get up in the morning, you know, go meditate, you know, it's like, um, okay, I'm not going to rush through this. Okay, I'm going to have patience, you know, or um, so in the same way, you know, uh, like what he used was listening. That was like what, what the theme that he used is like really listening to the people around him, really listening. Um, and so in the same way, uh, if that's what, what comes up for you, you know, it's like to really every conversation to just keep that in mind. Do that for a month as a practice. It can be an amazing practice for months to really in every conversation to to think about, oh, what's the best benefit for the person I'm speaking to? And that would be a very powerful practice, you know, so that's, a, um, you know, 
keeping a theme in mind in our lives helps us do that. And whatever, you know, I think it's a really great thing to just take a little time and see what, what is it that we need to um, help us communicate better with each other. What's helpful for us. So thank you very much.